Welcome to another episode of Wild and Exposed. This is Mark Raycroft. I'm recording a short episode today with Sean James of my self-reliance in his amazing hand-built log cabin in Northern Ontario. I had the pleasure of spending the afternoon here and we're going to break down some of the day as well as, well, more importantly, what's coming up. But so we've been, we've been getting together today planning for a trip coming up that we're going to share with all of you on Wild and Exposed as well as Sean's channel and all of his audience for his adventure. And some of this adventure we're going to be doing the same things together for several days over this approximate two-week period. And then Sean is going to embark on a trip he's been looking forward to for a long time that will be kept top secret for this for the near future until he puts it on his channel and then his viewers and presumably you as well will go over and see what was this bucket list solo exploration that he wanted to go and experience. So that aside, we've been talking about what this trip will entail, what to expect. There are a few potential curveballs this year. We have to adjust to the longer day length, which it's always fun. It's better than adjusting to the short day length, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. And we'll be adjusting to potentially warmer weather than Alaska's experienced in a while. Yeah, we're sitting here in the cabin right now, and it's, uh, what is it, 30 degrees out today? 34 degrees Celsius, which is, what, 75, 80 degrees? Yeah, at least 80. At least 80, 80 yeah. yeah. It's been warm here in Ontario. Yeah, and the bugs are enjoying the warm weather, but uh, that's what we're now looking at the weather in Alaska. It sounds like we're going to be experiencing something similar. Yeah, for the first little bit it might be. Hopefully the coastal areas will have some breeze and the bugs mm -hmm. won't be an issue. And I want to thank you for installing screens in this awesome cabin of yours <laughs> because they are trying to break in. <laughs> it sounds very dangerous out there tonight. <laughs> it was fine through the afternoon, but once yeah. once night fell, it was a different situation. Well, it's been such a uh, cool spring this year and wet that the uh, bugs were having their heyday. So a few few uh, warm days lately, and they're I think they're feeling the heat too, and they're staying uh, hidden during the daytime. But they're making up for it now. Right. Yeah. I was surprised there weren't more. Uh, yeah. A friend of mine was canoeing in Algonquin Park, not too far from here, but not next door either, I learned today. You're a little ways <laughs> further north. It's, it's fun getting in here. Um, but the, he was told the bugs are at a 30-year high in Algonquin due to the high water level. So they cut their trip short. Another one I was supposed to go on, but good. Sideline to editing, but that's not gonna happen this year, next week. Or, well, <laughs> I'm hoping, actually, I'm hoping to do a trip with them uh, in August. Was that a fishing-based trip or they were just going for Yeah, it was fishing-based, but I was also hoping to uh, do podcast stuff and film loons. Mm. And moose, they were in there. They cut it a day short, but they, they, I think, saw four or five moose. Mm -hmm. A cow and calf, they were quite close to, not too close to be unsafe, but close enough to get decent images with their smartphones. Mm -hmm. So it would have been worth going on, but it was, it was the worst experience he's had in the interior for mosquitoes, especially. Yeah, so our, our uh, my mate uh, spring uh, canoe trip this year, fishing trip, was delayed because of the late opening of the park. By the time we got out, it was May 12th or 
was it fifteenth? May fifteenth? We yeah, fifteenth we started. And we didn't see a bug the entire trip. And we were out for seven days. Perfect. Which yeah, it was absolutely perfect for that. The, the fishing was a little slow, but that was the first time that had canoed up on a cow with calves and we did it twice within a couple of hours or probably an hour and uh, you just drift right up to it and nothing we could do and sit there and, and enjoy the experience but that was pretty unique for me right yeah, yeah. they were just wobbly like they had just been born oh you're kidding yeah right yeah right on the edge right in the thick thick alder swamp on an oxbow in the middle of an oxbow so like a little island in this in this river sure so a beautiful experience well, that makes sense. I mean, they like to give birth near water and, and sometimes on islands to avoid mm -hmm. predators, right? So mm -hmm. it's the opportunity in springtime to, to find those super cute moose calves. Mm -hmm. I like that on your, on your vlog that I watched, too. Um, one of the fellows that was on that trip with you found a moose antler shed. Yes. And the trout, the lake trout that you caught, Beautiful, and you laid them out on this uh, b before the shore lunch on the moose antler shed. That was creative. I liked it. It, it resonated with the wilderness springtime experience. Yeah. Moose antler had only been on the ground presumably for a few months, right? Well, since midwinter kind of thing, mm -hmm. December, January. So <laughs> ice is just out. And Ted, it was Ted who found it, and he literally carried it throughout the trip. It was basically just a, for staging the uh, the shore ledge fish <laughs> each day for the rest of the trip. And that was the second day that we found that on. So here he is portaging with his antler wrapped around his neck, and then it came on top of it. Yeah, <laughs> that's cool. Yeah, it the was treasure. Cool. Yeah. I think it, I think it's great. It all ties together. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that got my attention. I remembered it. <laughs> so for this trip. This will be, and we had you on the podcast uh, for our listeners to go back on our website at wildandexposed.com and you can go back and look through the audio podcast we had Sean on. It would have been, uh, by the time this airs, probably three or four months ago. Mm -hmm. Or was it even midwinter? It was maybe more than that. Time flies. Yeah, it certainly does. It must have been March that we met, I think, eh? Okay, so it was early spring. Mm -hmm. I love doing podcasts, but we've had so many, it just... It, yeah, time goes by. So, introduction to Sean on that podcast, and, and this is going to be your first trip to Alaska. It is. So that's very exciting, and it's and it's a nice time of year to go, obviously, because the long days. If it's sunny, the days are very long from a photography point of view. The light's harsh through most of the day, but the first few hours and last few are great, And but that means, you know, up at five and then not shooting you know shoot for a few hours and then not out again till perhaps 8 p.m because it doesn't get dark till midnight wow. but if it's overcast we have all day and some of the destinations we have a variety of things planned uh, our podcast crew i guess yeah we can probably talk about this some of its surprises i think we want to share with our listeners mm. But we are going out on a boat for a few days for uh, marine mammals and who knows what else. That'll be fun to share and a new adventure for me on the water. But then you'll join up with us and we're going to have a few days with bears. Is the plan. Yeah. Now I wonder what the heat is going to do. It shouldn't impact the bears' activity, I wouldn't think, too much. They're going to eat when the salmon are in, but the rest of the wildlife, we'll see what the heat does to them. Yeah, so the bears will, yeah, definitely, I think it will, if it, if it stays hot, it'll be more toward just the begin early and late parts of the day, mm -hmm. and through the middle of the day, there won't be much point, mm -hmm. although, 
Uh, the river that we'll be going on is is heavily forested right to the bank, so there's, it'll be cooler, hopefully not too buggy. Mm -hmm. uh, was not buggy last year when Michael and I were there. Mm -hmm. It was quite good that way. Um, but yeah, I'm, I know that when we arrive, the first few days are still um, in the 80s, it's 30 degrees Celsius for the first, for this coming weekend wow. when we'll be there. So, but we're heading right to the coast, so I'm hoping yeah. that, that'll help. Yeah, I'll be out on the water. You'll be, right. If it's what, three days, you said? Yeah, three days. We've chartered this boat. It only fits six people, mm -hmm. uh, six guests, so we're, we're heading out and we're going to film it and all the behind the scenes and, and whatever we discover and create content on. So I don't. I know there are humpbacks. I know Michael and Missy, but humpback uh, whales bubble net feeding last year for hours. So that would be a top of the list experience. Mm -hmm. And then orcas. Uh, there's a possibility for that. Um, there should be sea otters and maybe sea lions. But yeah, having not done it myself, I'm. I'm not sure. I'm hoping I have some I have decent sea legs. Yeah. I'll, I'll let you know when, well, when you show up. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, I was out, uh, um, had some guests here a few days ago, you know, delivering the stove in Mountain uh, Alaska to them, and, and uh, told me he actually spent four years, I think it was, in the summers, although the ships were long, uh, fishing off of, uh, commercial fishing off the Kenai Peninsula and uh, Kodiak Island. Wow. And uh, he told me some, some interesting experiences out there. But, um, yeah, that was crazy, the amount of... I think what did he say they were sixteen hours on and eight hours off, and that would go on for like thirty days, and then they would switch off thirty or something like that. And the danger, and the, but the things that they saw was quite an experience. Right. But uh, once he met his future wife, he said, "It's enough for that. I'd like you to actually be home." And then, yeah, we, oh no, the, all right. This sounds familiar because there was a a podcast that Michael and Ron did with a guy they chartered boats about his boat this past early spring for eagles mm -hmm. out of homer and i think it was the same kind of storyline where he was doing that mm -hmm. but then settled down and it was just too much for a relationship to be gone that long yeah and the danger and not yeah. knowing whether he's ever coming back right it really stress is. yeah yeah and, and fatigue would be the big part of that right yeah, if you're absolutely. working those shifts yeah yeah so i'm sure you'll be fine Sean and I have been podcasting and doing vlogs for several hours today, and and I'll be honest with you, I it, I expected it to be a four-hour drive to get to this wonderful remote cabin, but it turned out to be closer to six, and I had planned to go back tonight, and so fatigue has factored into my day, and I'm not going back. I'm going to bunk out here in the cabin and uh, do do this additional podcast. So that's good, mm -hmm. but we can't say it's a danger, a dangerous fatigue like it would be on on this. <laughs> And that job, in this case, it's a little better. Mind you, if I if I elected to go home for six hours in the dark this tired, it could have been dangerous. So, mm -hmm. all right, that's not really about wildlife photography, but <laughs> but it is what we do: traveling and and daylight. And that will be a factor in Alaska because I remember last year, the weather was favorable and for days it was sunny and you just don't want to sleep through the middle of the day so the mm -hmm. first few days it's, you're yeah. excited to be there there's this coastal air which i've always found to be lighter mm -hmm. and just it's invigorating mm -hmm. i don't know what it is it's the air is thinner i mean 
and I, whether I'm in, in British Columbia or in Alaska, I, I, even Alberta in the mountains, I've, I've noticed that compared to Ontario. Hmm. So between that and a long day length, mm -hmm. the first few days, just go, go, go. But then then somebody, something reminds me I'm not 20 anymore. And <laughs> it's catch-up time. Well, I wonder what I'll be like with it there. Because first of all, I'm, uh, I've been passionate about fishing since about three or four years old. So to be out there and surrounded by these rivers and ocean and lakes and everything else, I'll be tempted to fill those daylight hours with fishing if the opportunity presents itself. So we'll see how much rest I get. And then of course, like you said, filming the golden hours and right. And then, uh, you know, going through that footage and downloading it and sorting it and protecting it and all that stuff. That's the life. Yeah. That's the life we are fortunate to live. <laughs> yeah, that's right. It's that trade-off. I mm -hmm. mean, it's still great, but yeah, there's definitely a lot of post-time commitment. Mm-hmm. But I'm excited for the experiences. I mean, I, I love that coastline, Alaska and the mountains and the wild. It's just, mm -hmm. it's, uh, every time is an amazing experience. And when I, frequently I've taken people along and, and you're joining us on this trip. And like I said, you have also have a period of it. That's your own agenda that you're doing a solo trip on, which is great. But it's, it's an exciting destination to share in my mind because I have yet to have somebody who come along or come and experience it it wasn't just moved mm -hmm. in unexpected ways and just you know it, between the, the and you're going to have you know uh, your own little plane flight through mm -hmm. some mountains that in itself is is True. a life life experience worth having mm -hmm. to see from the air at this wilderness and the glaciers and the mountains and then to go to where you're going and it will be phenomenal so tune in to Sean's YouTube channel and watch that as well. Part of our objective and, and something that you've already been helpful on, which I'm very grateful for, and on this trip I'm looking forward to learning more about creating YouTube content as well for our show and, and developing that for our listeners because in, in addition to the audio podcasts that we enjoy sharing, we're hoping to take people visually along on some of these or on many of these adventures that we have planned um, in the near and distance future, it's all getting mapped out. But mm -hmm. polishing that YouTube product mm -hmm. so that it's there for people to see is something that we're investing more time in and resources in this summer. So I want to thank you in advance yeah. with no yeah. pressure. <laughs> well, I'm for looking forward to seeing more of your content. Like I, I keep asking you questions behind the scenes here. It's, there's a lot that I need to, or that I'm interested in knowing about what you do and and what the three of you do behind the scenes and what it's like, like to live the life of a wildlife photographer. It's Here we go, right, that's right. We put these headsets on because we were chatting and it started to get interesting. And, <laughs> and I think for the third time today, Sean was asking, what's it like to be a wildlife photographer? And I threw it back at him and I was like, what's it like to be you know, such a successful YouTube show creator and producer? And you know, it's very interesting. There's similarities mm -hmm. and, and definitely the wilderness uh, aspect there's similarities and there's all the the post side you know there are differences but still similarities in production but to be a wildlife photographer if we could dive into that but uh what do i want to know yeah but where <laughs> do you want me to take this <laughs> well i think you're right first of all that there's similar similarities but one of the one of them is that um you know, we're both passionate about getting out there and enjoying the outdoors and enjoying the wildlife that, that we encounter. And, and 
the opportunity, like for me, I, I'm coming at this very recently, um, creating content with what I do. I've always just taken some photos or little videos or whatever over the years, but nothing that I ever thought I could actually turn into a career or something, if you can call it that. But um, it's just living this lifestyle and, and, and then um, preserving it for myself and now for a broader audience has just been a, another rewarding thing. You know, it's like you said about introducing people to Alaska for the first time and just seeing them in awe and, and the appreciation. Well, I feel that way about YouTube for myself and social media. I get to share that. And I've said this often on my channels that um, some days I get up and maybe I don't feel like doing anything. And I think, well, there's a lot of people out there that don't get to do what I do. They don't, they appreciate the life that I've, I, I'm living and I'd like to see more of it and it actually motivates me to get up and do that thing or do something interesting that day. So it, it's a, you know, it's reciprocal. I get something out of the audience, um, not only the feedback, but just the appreciation and the motivation to continue doing what I'm doing. Oh, that's awesome. I could see that working that way, mm -hmm. for sure. Yeah, especially with all the positive feedback that you have through your channels mm -hmm. and, and sharing what you do. So, I mean, that's, that is similar. I mean, there's certainly a lot of gratification to sharing, my, uh, as a wildlife photographer, those experiences with people. Mm -hmm. And similarly, I think, to your shows opening the door and people's eyes to the experience of the Canadian wilderness, the way that you do it, you know, my wildlife photography, one of the, the best things is, is when you hear that it moves people and... and, and sparks an interest you know, mm -hmm. whether it's through storytelling uh, through podcasts or video blogs or writing an article or whatever it might be I mean that's that's part of it it's becoming more and more of that I mean the business size is, is another part of the conversation but I enjoy probably the biggest part has always been telling the stories mm -hmm. come home from a trip right. you know and if, if I've been fortunate maybe to share a trip with somebody but there's so many friends and loved ones that don't know what's happened mm -hmm. so to come home and tell the story to them and show the images or the video um, is very rewarding and and I love doing that and I think that's what sparked our podcast uh, being created as well I, I know both Michael and Ron enjoy doing the same thing and there are a lot of people who don't have the privilege for any number of reasons to have the opportunity to have these experiences so it's become most gratifying aspect of being a wildlife photographer is sharing those stories and, and creating more and more of an interest in, in wilderness and um, that's a that's a become a big part of it at this point in, in my career and and at in this day and age in, in 2019 when you can share it so easily mm -hmm. you never used to be able to no. get the message out or tell the story but now that you can take a video and make a YouTube vlog or share something on Instagram and post it and put a caption with an explanation. It's, it's easy to do. And so many people have access to it. Well, it is now I think of all the amateur photographers, which the majority of people using a camera are, whether it's video or, or still photos, um, having the place to share that where in the past you didn't, there wasn't a broader audience. In fact, kind of be annoying when you showed up at your relatives and they wanted to go through the album right or the slides up on the 
on the screen and you're like, I don't want to see your trip. I don't want to see 150 trip or pictures of your little trip that wasn't all that interesting. Maybe it was to you, but maybe not to me. But things are have evolved so much that it's motivating people to get out and capture those photos so they can share it with their their audience on their social media, which could be just their friends and family, but it's a simple platform. So it gives them an outlet for that creativity right. where it was a lot more challenging in the past to share those things. And, and it's the same with, uh, with YouTube. It was, you know, if you go back, if you look at some of the forefathers, I can give a couple of specific examples, but I won't, uh, other than maybe Bill, Bill Mason, who was a, a canoeist and created uh, mostly movies about uh, canoeing and, and wilderness and, in this region, Canada for sure, but specifically Ontario, a lot of it. And, uh, you know, that was, you know, the seventies for the, for the most part where he was doing exactly what we're doing. But the difficulty then was, um, not only distribution, but also capturing with more primitive equipment. So it's amazing what those guys were able to do, um, that most people can't. Now all of us have access to this reasonably inexpensive gear and now these this these channels these outlets to share that with the world instagram and youtube and facebook so it's pretty exciting times that we live in and the fact that some of us can make a career of it is um you know a special thing and, it, and it's motivational for people but to talk about the sharing we, we were talking earlier today about passion and uh, you know there's a lot of people that uh, wonder how you become a wildlife photographer as I still am uh, curious about you and your path I think about and people ask me about my path and how they can have a successful YouTube channel or, or make money doing anything um, alternatively and the answer is, is it always comes back to passion and I know it's cliche that you know follow your passion or you know do what you love to do and you'll never work a day in your life and all that kind of stuff but it actually is true and it's um, it's the difference between passion and merely liking or even loving something. If it's your passion and you dedicate the majority of your time to that thing, then you're probably going to find success and find an, a way to monetize that or create a career around that thing. And as you've obviously done with uh, with photography, and I've been able to do this with YouTube, at late stage in my life, I'm getting new into this, but so passionate about living this lifestyle and then sharing it that the passion comes through and the people... Um, my, my audience likes the authenticity and the way I deliver the message but to me it's just the natural thing to do so just experiencing it and sharing that rather than specifically focusing I want to have a YouTube channel therefore I'm going to create content to make uh, make the, uh, take advantage of this platform mm-hmm. rather just do it live passionately and then and then share it through the most convenient uh, methods and YouTube for me happens to be that yeah well it resonates with people because it is authentic you know what you're doing is straightforward it's it's real it's authentic and it's it's adventurous and it's it involves labor and focus and not just mm-hmm. not just your passion in 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 the content you create media wise but in the product that you're showing people i mean sitting here in your cabin and the authenticity of all the aspects of it 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 just it's it's subtle, it's wild, but it's it's real, right? It's, I don't want to say loud because it's not, but it, it, the 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 texture and and the labor put into this and creativity, all that I think really stems from your passion. But I think the viewers appreciate all those components, and and that's why it's worked so well. 
Oh, I heard somebody said something so, somewhere. I got so many nice messages and, and comments on my um, all all my social media accounts, but um, something about the um, I lost the train of thought. That's okay. <laughs> that happens. That happens. You know, just describing the the cabin and the, and what you've done for work and and labor and how you know it's it's your yeah. me, your media. Oh, you got it. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so in this day and age, with so much, um, so many platforms, so many uh, ways to share what uh, you have to say, anybody has has to say, it's become. I think um, we've saturated the online world with our thoughts and our actions, but. Um, it used to be that you could write a book, for example, or you could go on stage and say something, and and it was really just words. You could say you could be a motivational speaker, for example, and go out and say, you know, do this and this and this, and your life's gonna be better. But the, those people were mostly talking; they mm-hmm. weren't acting. There was a delivery, there was yeah, a style of delivery that mm-hmm. that people latched onto. It was, yeah, and there could have, could be uh, next to no substance behind that that person delivering that message but they were just good at delivering it. And um, now I think people can see through that because if there's, because we're sharing so much and it's so regular that if there's not some authenticity behind it and there's not some action behind those words, then quickly it, 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 uh, people lose interest or they realize it's not authentic enough. So I, I feel like whether it's your wildlife photography or my filming, um, we can't just say, be passionate, be passionate and go out and create a career around your passion. We are living it every single day, and there's um, there's too many um, places, times, and places to slip up and not reveal. Um, just try to explain this a little bit better. Uh, we reveal ourselves fully re- re- because we're posting so often. We're creating so much content. Right. We reveal the depth behind our message where in the past you could just have a message, deliver it once a week, once a month, once a year, in a one, maybe you write one book in five years and that's your message, it's just in words. Um, now we get to see what the actions are behind those words. Right, no, definitely, that, that's part of it, for sure. And, and people, it's, it's exposed mm-hmm. that way, not to, not to go back to wild and exposed, but it's, <laughs> it's exposed. And you know what, that's something I wanna jump on. First of all, everything on Sean's channels it's real. I'm here. I've. It's all here, and it looks. It's impressive on the channels, and it's even more impressive in real life. What what he's done in his in this place here in the wild. It's it's something else. Um. Now I'm gonna flip it back to Sean because my train of thought is gone. After yeah. Okay. So. Oh yeah. So I want to just say something. Is I've on my. It's, it's off topic. I know. I know. So I'll just jump on it for thirty seconds. It's been on my mind for a few weeks. Wild and exposed. Wild, and exposed is the name of our podcast, and it's something uh, that I wanted to just touch on with our listeners because maybe not everybody knows why we called it that, and some people think other things right out of the gate, and we do want it to have a hook, right? And that was it has to be something memorable. It was it took us weeks. To come up with the name, we batted around a hundred options, and then had to find something online that was still available and mm-hmm. for all the various applications. But wild is about wildlife photography, wild adventure, wilderness, planet Earth. What the real planet Earth resonates for our team in the in the wilderness, 
exposed, well, there's a joke behind it, of course, because it sounds like exposed, but we are always closed, trust me. It's <laughs> now included. Now included. Um, you know, I do have the zip-off short pants, and Sean zipped off the lower part of his legs because it's hot in the cabin here on the beginning of summertime, and I'm tempted to do the same, but um, exposed was, we always went on these trips you know, and uh, Michael talked about this on a recent podcast where we carried bags of film. I had this mesh bag with 100 rolls of film in it to go on a two or three week trip. That's all we had with us. We're going into the wilderness. And the terminology when we finished was how many of those rolls of film were exposed? Oh, right. right. Right? They're exposed. They're done. They've been shot, put through the camera, rolled up, they're ready to be shipped out. They're exposed. So it was about exposing the film. And now, similarly, but different, we exposed the sensor on our camera to light that magically, I could work a camera so well, but I have no idea how this little flat sensor <laughs> records these images or videos. But by opening the shutter, we exposed the sensor to create our content. So just for those of you that may not know why we called the podcast Wild and Exposed, we wanted it to be memorable, but it does have a meaning. That's what the meaning is behind the name. So, as far as this trip coming up, we head out very soon to Alaska, and you will have the opportunity to experience a salmon run with black bears and brown bears sharing a river, and there aren't that many places where both of those species hmm. coexist. Mm -hmm. And within potentially 15 or 20 minutes, you could see one of either species go by on, on the river looking for salmon or salmon carcasses to feed on. So it's a really amazing potential experience. Of, and then there are eagles and other, other birds scavenging along as well. Is there wolves in that? Any wolf packs that operate in the river system? Very likely, but I personally don't can't say... Uh, uh, how frequently we last year in a handful of days that Michael and I were there we didn't hear of any wolves I mean it's such a vast wilderness mm -hmm. there has to be a wolf pack in the area or wolves in the area but I don't know it, you know there are places where they do feed on salmon yeah. along the coast and, and scavenge and um, the Great Bear Rainforest area was is one where that occurs in a recent podcast with uh, Tim Irvin. And if you haven't he heard this podcast, everybody, uh, after you finish this one, go back. It's worth a listen. That, that We put up two from Tim, and but he uh, has a lot of experience in the Great Bear Rainforest and there are wolves there. But that would be amazing to see. You never know. Mm -hmm. That's wildlife, right? Yeah, Something sure. could show up. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I'm excited about that. And like I said, the... Uh, <clears throat> the salmon runs themselves that are quite interesting to me. I'm, I'm, a, a, I'm a fisherman at heart. I mean, it's not, not my core, but certainly something that I'm passionate about. Just to, so just to see those massive runs. It's like seeing the caribou for the first time. I've been up to Quebec three or four times, northern Quebec, um, winter, um, watching the herds come through and been in the middle of the mass migration. And it's literally something that if anybody... It's an opportunity to experience that. It is a once-in-a-lifetime uh, thing. Hmm. It's pretty, pretty amazing. And the salmon runs are like that. They're, it's, it's just imagine to be like the buffalo herds of the past, right? And you get this hmm. huge abundance of wildlife in one place. 
it's um, it's just hard to imagine in this day and age. So to hear or see these massive salmon runs and understand the the, the size of these runs across all the whole western coast of uh, America and, and Canada, it's amazing if you really think how much uh, um, food, really. Biomass. Biomass, yeah, yeah coming into right. these rivers from transferring from the ocean to the... Mm. And the fact that Pacific salmon die after spawning, just imagine that transfer of of uh, carbon and or, um, you know, microorganisms and everything associated with the salmon transferring to this forest. It's it's an incredible ecosystem, and and the salmon, I mean, even nourish the trees, the old mm-hmm. growth forests, because there's such an abundance of salmon, it'll get to the point where. The predators like the bears or the wolves will carry the salmon up into the forest to feed on them, but there are so many they'll only eat the choice part of the fish and leave the rest. And that nutrient absorbs into the soil and even feeds the old growth forest trees. Yeah. I mean, the, as well as, you know, numerous other species. Mm-hmm. I've heard, heard recently the trees along the uh, salmon rivers, um, up to 80% of the nitrogen contained has is, is come from the salmon directly. Right? Who would who would predict that? Right, mm-hmm. out of the water, up and into the trees, and wow, mm-hmm. it's it's amazing. It yeah. is. Yeah, so I'm excited about that. I'm excited about the little side trip that I'm doing, and excited to get up into the hills. It's a big and side trip, <laughs> my friend. It's a big side trip. <laughs> yes, but that's cool. I'm very excited. I'm excited for you, and I can't wait to hear about it and and see what you do on that trip. Mm-hmm. Um, regarding the salmon run, you know when when. Michael and I were there last year, and we we continue to evolve with what we do for the show, and we had a lot of fun, and we did a we did a good job with what we created. But this year, I'm I'm excited about greater possibilities. We have more of a team around us, and and then also we continue to evolve with what we put out and and fine tune and hone our product. And so the salmon run, something we did not get to do last year, mm-hmm. that we want to do this year, is hopefully do some underwater footage as well, mm-hmm. and capture some of that perspective of dipping under and coming up, and and just showing that um, what's below the surface, mm-hmm. as well as the bears along the shoreline and the eagles going by, and and the fun that we're having in in that amazing place. Mm-hmm. So that'll be that'll be. Well, you know, part of it with doing a show like, like yours and ours is behind the scenes, and and that's hope. That's, I'm going to focus more on that than my photography, uh, built because I I don't need a lot of this for my portfolio. There definitely will be opportunities that I won't be able to resist. I'm sure. I look forward to those, but I'm looking forward to telling the story behind the scenes so that you know, I think Ron has picked up. A new housing, underwater housing for his oh, DSLR. Okay, nice. And he's going to be trying that for the first time, I think, in this river. I want to be there, mm-hmm. six feet behind him, filming how that <laughs> goes down, and and the fun and and trial and error. You know, it might take a day or two to figure out how to best work that to capture what we want. I don't know. I mean, Ron's pretty good with the gear for sure, but it's. Uh, Part of the, I'm I'm as excited about sharing the story with people as I am about filming it. Really, so you know, we just mentioned that you start to, talking about the meaning behind Wild and Exposed. Uh, I'm waiting for you to say that. Actually, it exposed 
exposing these wildlife photographers how they got to this point or how they're uh, they've made a career of this and what goes on behind the scenes that's the part that i from the day we met i mentioned that that that, uh, that's the part i'm so curious about i like i said i talk about so often about following your passion or finding a career that that you're uh, at least interested highly interested and preferably passionate but i want to know what does it wildlife photographer do behind the scenes so i want to see that exposed there you go you will you'll see it exposed all right and Mm -hmm. i am not trying to be evasive we just keep going down these rabbit holes of conversation (laughs) and but it's it's better to come along and see it and and Mm -hmm. again as our product of our show continues to evolve i hope it's easier and easier for our audience to feel that to Mm -hmm. feel what it's like to be there to feel what it's like to do what we do and and to learn about animal behavior or fish behavior, or whatever we're working with, to best capture it, whether it's stills or video, to illustrate the magic of what's going on in these ecosystems. But behind, I mean, I don't, I don't know if you want me to really get into that, but well, it, being a wildlife photographer, I mean, it's, it's, it's not a big market, and it's getting smaller with the digital world. The one benefit of the digital world that's helped keep it viable is it expanded more globally hmm. because we can market globally and even stuff like Instagram uh, social media can I've had clients find me from countries I've never worked with before mm-hmm. and um, the digital platforms given the opportunity to show a breadth of a portfolio well that's another rabbit hole there because social media you know and you get a niche and it encourages you to post the images that psychologically give you the best results and then it, it gets narrow and narrow but that's another conversation we have touched on that on the podcast yeah, but yeah I mentioned it yeah I heard you mention something about um, your your uh, horned or antlered animals um, mm-hmm. way outperforming your bears for example right yeah and I, I enjoy filming and photographing bears as much as I do antlered animals it's a different experience albeit uh, but I, I enjoy both and I like sharing both but i don't put as many bears up because of that that difference in traction but i make sure to you know put one up every 10 posts or so mm-hmm. i just I, it's like i believe with anything with photography there even if somebody's a specialist in a niche there has to be a diversity in a portfolio there's a diversity of seasonality there's a di- diversity of primary colors uh in the imagery there's a diversity of behavior composition, close-ups, environmental portraits, and, in, and as well as a diversity in species to some degree. And all of those things, I think, are instrumental in success. But behind it all, I don't think, because it's a fairly small market, and there are different markets within it, of course, too, and there's different products that people can become successful. There are those that just have their own galleries, and are successful. There are those that just sell prints and are successful. There are those that do stock and are successful. There are those that do video. There's those that do commercial uh, work. There, there are different opportunities, but I don't believe any of it works without, again, uh, the cliche of, of that passion and drive mm-hmm. because you have to continually create content. Uh, to be successful, you have to market it continually and it's an it's a, it's not a short race. It's a marathon yeah. to become 
to make it enough to be an income. Mm -hmm. It's not overnight. Mm -hmm. You know, and I guess a, a, a potential analogy would be nobody gets, I don't know, I could pick a figure, nobody gets 20,000 Instagram followers overnight mm -hmm. anymore. I mean, at least I don't know if anybody has had that happen. Mm -hmm. Or the, it takes time to grow it. There's a, an investment of time. And with that, in a, and from a creator's point of view, whether it's, your show and that content for video or still photography for wildlife, time, time evolves that product and it continues to become more polished and better and better. And any wildlife nature photographer enthusiast, I guarantee you the more pictures you take, the better you'll get at it. Your results will become more consistent. But, it, you know, with the exception of some people who might be gifted, it does take years. You know, it, it took me years to train my eye, and every once in a while, I'd be high-fiving myself because I got the <laughs> the composition and the image, and it was sharp that I had really hoped to collect. But it didn't happen all the time. You know, and I used to joke back in back in the slide days. You know, I had sat at my desk and I had a slide table, which is just a white plastic table lit from behind. How things have changed. And I'd lay out all the slides, all 36, count them, all 36. <laughs> Didn't take long to put them up. And I'd take my little loop, and, I mean, like an eye doctor, I'm looking at each slide, and if it wasn't good, I threw it over my shoulder onto the floor. Uh -huh. And I'd do another one, I threw it onto the floor. And if it was a trip and there was 100 rolls, I'd do that. I'd edit them all, keep the ones I'd like, they'd go back and they'd, transfer into a special container, slotted container that was safe and sealed up. But the pile on the floor went into a bag. Mm -hmm. And they were going to be disposed of, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. uh, but the joke was, and I didn't tell everybody this, but it was common amongst professionals. And, and again, we had the benefit of being professionals because every slide was 50 cents. I mean, uh -huh. it, it was something that... Being good at the trade was what kept people in it because the cost mm. as a professional, mm -hmm. you know, it was twenty-five dollars or $30,000 a year for film. Wow. And that wasn't doable without selling. Right, yeah. Right? But, huh. but the joke behind it that I, again, is, is something I'm sharing with our audience only, <laughs> was the amount of slides that weren't kept, Right. So there were all kinds of variables. I mean, we were, we were handcuffed at shooting 50-speed film. Mm -hmm. Velvia was the best. And, you know, I would shoot Provia 100, push to 200 if I had to. But that did not keep the colors as well. So well, there were a lot of blurry images, is my point, right. because of the sh slow shutter speed. Mm -hmm. And a lot were disposed of. But it takes time. You know, I believe every, every year I got better. And the, and the percentage of, of keepers went up. Right. And digital has vaulted that. And not for necessarily me as a professional, but I think for anybody who keeps at their photography, shooting in raw and the latitude of correction that can be done to that file to make it a polished image. And I'm not talking about changing the picture. I'm just talking about adjusting the brightness, adjusting the contrast, tweaking the saturation or vibrance. Mm -hmm. 
um, potentially sharpening the eye. If it's just a hair off, you can still sh sharpen it in Photoshop and, and retain that. And then the percentage of marketable images is shot way up. Quick, quick, sorry, quick technical yeah. question. When you're shooting, do you shoot raw and also a small J JPEG file or something to for review purposes? No. No, I'm just 100% raw. Everything's okay. raw. I can, once I import it into my computer, I can run it through software and put it to any file size I want. Mm, okay. And the cameras are so efficient at viewing these large megapixel files now. I never have any delay in viewing. Okay. And I can zoom in on the back of, of my camera and, and with confidence know I have a sharp image. Mm. And then what I'll do... Um, we've talked about our workflows on one podcast and we'll probably get into it again in the future to revisit that because it's warranted and it, it, there are adjustments that keep, ha keep happening too but I shoot everything in RAW but there's software that what I do is well, I'll just do it quickly I'll, I'll take the RAW and then I'll, and I'll select the ones that are sharp and the composition I want I'll work them in camera RAW to some degree and then I transfer them into Photoshop. And I review all my RAW in, in Adobe Bridge. Mm -hmm. And in the film strip mode, I hit up, up to 100% in camera RAW, verify sharpness, because I can see the composition on the film strip mode. Mm -hmm. I like it. I check the, percent, the sharpness. Then it's open in camera RAW, raw adjust saturation, sharpness, um, white balance, uh, brightness, contrast. And then I'll open it in Photoshop. And I know Photoshop still isn't isn't the common necessarily go to nowadays, but it's still in from what I do, what I believe to be my most efficient workflow software. In Photoshop, I'll tweak it a bit more for those same components. I'll work levels, I'll work um, saturation, and if I have to do any minor sharpening, I use Unsharp Mask for that. Highlight just a portion of the image or the whole thing, depending on what's going on. In cropping to some degree if, if it's warranted uh, because of these large files, it's doable. Then I'll save it as a TIFF, and then I will also save it as a high-res JPEG. Mm -hmm. Then I'll open up the high-res JPEG folder in, uh, I use Photo Mechanic, okay. and I just batch process everything to a social media size okay. or to a client submission size. That's bigger than social media. Social media, I just I just hover above the surface of what's acceptable because they do get out there, even with watermarks. Oh, yeah. You know, there are people who just don't know the ethics behind photography and copyrighted work that live in countries that aren't aware. There are kids that don't know. There are people who do it blatantly and don't care, mm -hmm. you know, and we try to manage that stuff, but it's, it's, it's almost impossible. So watermarking it is done... Th um, through Photo Mechanic, but sometimes for social media, I'll use iWatermark app on my, well, actually, a lot of the time, I'll use iWatermark app on my phone because I position it more. I guess I should elaborate. On Photo Mechanic, I always put a watermark along the bottom of the image mm. as my, okay. it says copyright Mark Rakeroff yeah. Photography. It also has my website, uh, markrakeroff.com. That's on the bottom. That that's meant for my clients, and they're one size of low res, seventy two DPI, and but they're bigger and a little better image integrity than what I put on social media. Because when I have my my clients open them on their desktops, on their iMacs, 
that are 5K IMAX often, mm-hmm. I don't want those to pop on their screen. Mm-hmm. I don't want them to be pixelated okay. or look soft. It, it's still low res, so it's, it's an efficient file size to deliver via email or a bunch of them in a folder over Dropbox or Hightail. Mm-hmm. But I want those images to be striking, even though they're low res. So they're bigger than what I put on social media. And because images do occasionally go around on social media, whether it was intended or not, once they start, they seem other people grab them off these other hubs and right, it's yeah. a whole other issue. Yeah. So I just try to, and I've seen this with other professional photographers who are successful on Instagram too. They are just good enough. As soon as you zoom in, they fall apart, okay. you know. So I'd hover around that size as well. And again, they're still 72 DPI, but they're smaller. They might be 700 pixels wide and at a 40%, um, there's a sliding scale on most of these adjustment softwares. I'll slide it down to 40%. And that seems to work. But for listeners who are thinking about this for their own purposes, it's something you should test through your software because everybody... You know, what one person is happy with how their images look, someone else's will have a different feeling. So do it for your own self and test them at different sizes. Mm-hmm. Whatever software you're using, put them through. And then, you know, lots of people don't care. It's because as a professional, I have to be somewhat careful. Right. Um, social media is, is a, it seems to be, I mean, it's, it's a good, it's a, it's a great marketing platform. Um, but, you know, I don't know how to open this conversation. I put up some of my best images, but I do not put up my absolute most the images that, you know, my top 10 aren't there because right. of these concerns. I wish mm. they could be in some bit they, they might be, but I do put up high quality images because this represents my work. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's great because so many of my clients follow my Instagram and they see more of my work that way than they might in, in our dealings with one another right. because they're looking for something specific. I had a client email me today that, I mean, I've got a few days to get back to this one so there's no panic, but um, he needs rough gross images. And so he'll get a submission from me tomorrow or the next day with a collection of suitable rough gross images. But by also following me on Instagram, he's going to see my black bears and my caribou and a snowshoe hare or a ptarmigan or my elk. It just, it's, it's a better breadth of portfolio presentation. So I appreciate that about social media. So to me, it's worth doing and meeting people. Mm-hmm. You know, there have been, you know, there's got to be 40, 50 people who I interact with regularly through Instagram who are genuinely wonderful people who give great comments and then some of those people I've now met in real life and and would never have happened otherwise mm-hmm. so there are all these things to weigh but I, I just what I should close on is being a, as a professional I sign contracts with my publishers when they license an image for a certain application so I just have to be careful about where images go and how they're handled um, you know, in the event that on that rare occasion it's licensed for exclusive use, mm-hmm. you know, for something. So I just have to be able to manage that. That's one of the primary reasons low resolution is necessary. As low resolution as possible is necessary for social media. And why I don't post my photographs on Facebook. Okay. Because Facebook, from everything I've heard, now I'm not an expert on this because I don't really... 
I have a presence on Facebook so that I can connect that to Instagram and potentially do promotions on Instagram but and interact with some people on Facebook that aren't on Instagram. But everything from what I've been told becomes public domain on, on Facebook. So yeah, you could still put a bigger watermark maybe across the animal instead of subtly mm -hmm. beside it. See. But it's still something that anybody can use for any purpose they want, if I understand correctly. But once I was told that as a professional, like that's scary because I have clients who license images with certain parameters in place in exchange for the money they pay me. And if that image is on social media and that caribou gets used on something else, mm -hmm. that's not, so it's all management that way. I'm, I'm sorry, this is too much of a soapbox. We have other things that are more exciting to talk about. <laughs> But it's it's relevant from my, where you don't know it totally. Yeah, I'd like I've just one question I have about that is um, do you hold back your best photos for a certain amount of time before you would use them on Instagram? Like are you generally posting older photographs that maybe have gone through the cycle of client review and and you know you're not likely to sell that image again, or currently or you know sean this recorder that i've using for the first time tonight i really hope it's recording because after all this time you're the first person to ask that question <laughs> yeah nobody's ever brought that up and that's one of the wonders of being a wildlife photographer <laughs> so fashion photographer you're limited by timeline and what's you know and the wonderful thing about photographing animals or wilderness or landscapes is it's timeless <laughs> right so i do it's a balance I do put up new images all the time. I put up videos from trips. I put stuff in the story part of Instagram that's um, new, but I also put up favorite things from the past. Mm -hmm. You know, some of the flights that I've taken into wilderness, uh, maybe collected 20 clips through my camera or smartphone or the Osmo Pocket, and I'll share those over time. Mm -hmm. different ones because it, it tells the story um, so a lot of new images but it's there are there are some images that have done really well for me that are among my favorites that I have done up on big metal uh, prints in my office in our in our house that I would love to share but they sell so well and they've done so well that uh, there I haven't and the people some some people or colleagues are, are like I've got messages uh, direct messages from them it's like why the heck aren't you putting that picture up <laughs> kill it man put it up and I'm like oh, I don't know I'm just I, I there's some hesitate but there aren't many that I do that with I put up a lot of good stuff because I have to mm -hmm. stand I still have to stand out and not that it has to be the best of the best by any means but I have to I have clients that I really enjoy working with and, and I have colleagues, other photographers that I are on Instagram and follow me and I follow them and I want people to see what I can do for work and right. so it has to be as good as I can be but there are favorites that don't get up there and to more specifically answer your question, yes I on occasion do put up older images that on, they're just as good. Mm -hmm. But they're now obsolete because they were slides, and I don't even market them anymore. Mm -hmm. And so they're, and I, I don't, I, I, there's always a little bit more, um, I'm more relaxed about those mm -hmm. in that sense because they're, they're not ones that I am marketing now. 
and they've had their life you know they've mm -hmm. been they've been in different things different markets and over all those years of shooting slides there's still great images and scanned for social media uh, no problem oh really <laughs> no problem they look great i mean i've for years there was that transition where they were scanned and published i mean i had uh, i don't know a thousand slide scans in calendars or magazines and stuff um easily that were fine but they're no longer fine only because they were at that time they reproduced fine in the publications mm -hmm. no problem they looked fine to the editors on their computers in the digital format being slide scans so there was this transition time of two or three maybe even four five years depending on the how quickly the publishing house got on board with digital that they were they were accepted and, and did fine but the problem now with slide scans and why they don't work is the new digital cameras are so superior mm -hmm. that when you include something like that in a submission right. they they look inferior right they still reproduce fine but when you put it on a on a high-end monitor to what comes off these digital cameras now it's night and day Okay. So I don't even put them out there. It's mm -hmm. rare. If it's a specific behavior that's being requested and I only have it on a scan from a slide and it really is a unique image and, and you know, I know we've we've had, Michael too has had some absolutely mind-blowing wilderness encounters over the years and some of those were slides and same with me with slides. So the in my in my book one of my favorite spreads that I was able to do, and I'd never been able to put this together in any other publication. They'd been published, but not in a sequence, unfortunately. There's a spread with four pictures of two big bull moose. It's uh, in the rutting chapter where they're sparring, and it's this bluish background and the red tundra and these two magnificent bulls, but there's this posturing change each picture. Mm -hmm. for the four segments mm -hmm. those were slide scans mm -hmm. for the book and the book was only published um, maybe two years ago in September so you know well into great digital cameras now but I didn't have a sequence that was as magical to me as that for light and the animals and they reproduce fine so once in a while just because of unique behavior there's still life to them but again, I'm talking too long on this. But yes, for social media, I do use older images and new because they all look the same. Was there a point? How long was... It's the longest answer ever. <laughs> <laughs> for a tired guy. <laughs> for a tired guy. But yeah, I did open that. Uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> I had half of that espresso coffee thing over there. Sorry to say. Yeah. I didn't have all of it because I figured I'd be up twitching all night. But yeah, it seemed to work. <laughs> it seems to. Yeah. Um, how long uh, were digital cameras out before you stopped using film? Yeah, we touched on this. I was one of the slower ones to transition. Mm. This was in a very recent podcast. Oh, really? It may not even have aired yet mm. when we're recording this. Um, yeah, it's it's coming up if it hasn't already. I waited because I can I can summarize this faster. I'll do my best. I waited because of the industry. There were too many file format types. JPEG wasn't necessarily a go-to. Okay. Uh, a lot of publishers wanted RAW, but RAW is unappealing, flat, 
colorless. It's like, oh, I can't give you the raw. That's not what it's supposed to look like. It mm-hmm. does not look like the scene that was in front of the camera. Mm-hmm. Let me, I was there, let me make it look like the scene that was in front of the camera and give you that. And the monitors were all over the map. Everybody mm-hmm. was using different platforms. In the, in the creative world, most productions are done on Mac now. Mm-hmm. There's there may still be PC out there, uh, but most of my clients I know are on Mac. But back then, during the early days, it was all over the map, and everybody's monitor was different. The calibrations on monitors were, you didn't know what you're looking at. Right. And then you go to print it. It's like between the monitor and the printer, it's like what happened there? Mm-hmm. Or they sent it off to be printed. What happened there? Or it looks great on my computer. I created this digital image. And I sent it to my client, and this happened once. This is, this is another secret story only for our audience, because it's kind of embarrassing. But it was no fault, it's just the technology. I thought the caribou was perfect. And I sent it to a client in the UK, and she emailed me and said, why is the caribou pink? <laughs> I'm like, the caribou's not pink. <laughs> I know I've told the story in the other podcast, but it, it, it pointed out that there were too many uncertainties in the profession that... It made me pause to switch, and uh, and there were a lot of clients of mine that hung on to slides mm-hmm. for those years too. Right. You know, keep sending me. They they requested, even though it was early digital days, they wanted the slides because they weren't comfortable with what they were receiving. They might if they were getting. So let's say a magazine works with six or eight primary photographers a year. They were getting different looking images oh, because yeah. of everybody's system was different. There was no standard that was, that was, it's still not perfect, but it, it wasn't consistent across the platform. So there was a reluctancy to get on board. But when I did, I think it was Nikon's second generation of digital. Um, my first, if I remember correctly, my first digital camera was a Nikon D2XS. And I had a couple of those and I thought they were awesome but they weren't when I look back now. <laughs> but for that two or three year window, they filled a gap mm. and were publishable. And, but now, yeah, I, I would never have thought that digital would be capable of surpassing Velvia for just lack of grain and sharpness and color, but it has. Mm. I mean, it's almost, it almost feels limitless now what's happening for the capabilities of these files and digital. So the first generation, you know, even those images don't go out anymore. The D2XS, I don't market those because when they go side by side as a high-res JPEG, it would have to be an exceptional file from that mm-hmm. generation of camera to be okay alongside the new ones. Right. So how many years would that have been? couple years maybe oh no more than that yeah my life goes going by so quickly i'd have to count on my fingers and toes to remember accurately um but it's i could look it up it's probably eight years ago i don't know but there have been big jumps in the past two or three years the big the d the d3 was after the d2x that was the first camera that could shoot comfortably 800 ISO and that was like somebody you know just incredible to think you could shoot at 800 ISO well and then the D3S polished that a little further not that I wanted to shoot more than 800 but the file integrity was better and I'm sorry I'm only talking Nikon because that's 
That's mm -hmm. what I've shot. I know that other camera, like Canon, was definitely on par and has had you know some product components superior to Nikon and vice versa. Mm -hmm. This isn't knocking anyone else's cameras. I just, from my experience, so the D3S was a little better. The D4 I didn't buy because it didn't seem to have as big a jump from everything I reviewed and read. And nowadays, with social media and YouTube, there's so many opportunities to to listen to what people say on these test reviews and I recommend doing lots because you want to get a good cross sampling when you mm -hmm. listen to these new products coming out from different people and learn about them before investing in it. But the D4 I did, the D4S I did because I heard that the ISO, low light ISO had jumped. But it was better than the D3S but it didn't jump enough in hindsight in my opinion to justify the investment. Um, and it's been it's been slowly moving up, and I know there are other pro shooters who are more comfortable at even higher ISOs than I do, and I still try to stick at eight hundred or a thousand. I'm totally comfortable with those. I'll go to sixteen if I have to, but I know there are those that go much higher. Um, but I I personally, when I look at my images at a hundred percent, I I've noticed a difference beyond that, okay. and I don't want any limit limit to the application. Mm -hmm. I, if somebody wants a billboard, I want to be able to sell the billboard because I'll make more money off of a bigger image sale, bigger reproduction. And if I know that I shot it at 5,000 ISO and it's only good up to mm -hmm. 16 by 24, I just have to watch that. And if I know that there's some images in my platform that I can't do that with, then it's managing where they go. So I, I like have confidence in no matter where they go that they can be put to any application that's doable at this point in time. Yeah. I, uh, all right, I'm not going to have any more of that uh, expression. <laughs> that's supposed to be short too. Right, we should talk more about this trip and what, what's going on. Sure. And, um, unless you have more questions. I'm not, I, I, well, you know what? I, I, we'll get into each, it. Yeah, because each, um, everything you say, I've got more questions, but um, you know, we'll it's, it's, a, it's a fun, and, and I think this is where you need to be passionate and driven because it's a dramatically changing landscape. Every two years, it's like photography's reinventing itself with technology. Well, my response immediately as you were finishing that up, that long-winded response. <laughs> yeah, thank you. <laughs> Hopefully informative, but yes, long-winded, yeah. yeah right. But was that it's, it's actually done usage specific too for me what i was looking for in, a, in filming cameras is completely different what i was looking for in still camera so it's a matter of uh, yeah what are you shooting are you ever in low light actually the main reason i went from a crop sensor which was fine when i was out shooting more wildlife photography a few years ago birds and in flight and stuff was the low light in this cabin once the cabin was built suddenly my crop sensor was not uh, taking in enough light, so I went to a full frame and then I ended up going up from there. And right. it was video, because I was videoing, not, I couldn't just slow my shutter speed down. Well, so, that, yeah, that dictates what you need. Mm -hmm. And if the gear's capable of doing it, then you, you have to switch for the better result, if it saves you time. But that being said, you know, I, and my, the, the cameras don't have to get any better. Mm-hmm, right. Right, I mean, but that being said, you know, three or four years from now, there may be no such thing as ISO. Mm -hmm. And I'll have to get on board with that because if you can go out and the camera just takes the picture, whether it's dark or not, and, and expose, I mean, it's amazing what you, you can take a picture that looks near dark 
it's, let's say you have it's at 1600 ISO and you take the picture, it looks quite dim out in front of you and you hit the play on the back of your camera, you look at it, it looks like two o'clock in the afternoon on an overcast day. <laughs> it's like, where'd all that come from? Right, yeah. It's amazing. Yeah, what's uh, shocking though, as more and more people get into filming though, video over uh, still photography is realizing how bad it still is as far as ISO. Like you, if it's, uh, you start getting the low light, the cameras can't focus, the ISO is so high that it's extremely grainy. When I first started shooting, I thought when I bought uh, my first decent camera, I thought I could go out and film like the stars or film the moon or film fireworks even, and it's not the case. Like, you're better off taking old uh, time-lapse photos and just making that look like a video. Uh, that's interesting. Yeah, I haven't dabbled enough in, in low light with video to have seen that. So well, it's horrible. It's, Even here with that light on my camera, it's it's a lot of times my ISO is at sixty four hundred or higher. Right. Yeah. I like sometimes much twelve twelve eight or whatever the next. Um, and it's it's extremely grainy. Um, so for the benefit of our listeners and thinking about your impressive youtube channel and show where do you notice the pixelation really having an effect when at what point in the iso being bumped you do you kind of cringe and, and worry about that pixelation a lot of times i don't worry so much about it because i'm if it's creating the mood okay then i'm not concerned how clear it is so in here for example i loved you know, with this new stove the fire is gonna be beautiful um and I'll be at 6400 typically. It'd be very grainy, but it still has that mood that I'm looking for. Right on. Okay. I don't need that clarity. So that's more important is is the mood and that message and it's acceptable then to have some some image or video integrity fall off because it's still Well, yeah, and I think even the um uh, syndicated uh, reality TV shows where the the contestants or the participants are filming their own right. footage, and you see how jumpy and poor quality that is. Mm. It still goes to market because it's the content that matters, not so much the quality of that image, quality of that film. I love it. I love it. That's good. That's good to share with people. I mean, that that is a big part of it. Mm -hmm. It's content driven, right? Mm -hmm. So it's acceptable, not for it to be top-notch if the content is intriguing and, and keeps people watching. Yeah, a lot of times it creates more drama. There's a lot of jumpiness. And mm -hmm. I mean, you see that specifically. Once you start you know, once you start making videos, you start paying attention to Hollywood films and, and TV sure. programs a little bit closer, and you see how much jumpy footage is, right? Because I'm filming myself most of the time. It's on a tripod static, and I'm afraid to pick it up and have any movement. And then you watch a, a TV program like a chase scene or something or a fight and that camera is purposely jumping all over the place to create some drama and when i'm in here that ice low iso might um high iso number might be uh, creating more drama it's more right. i don't know yeah it's creating more mood than if it was just a sh super sharp clear image wow that's great mm -hmm. and I, I like that you shared with people too the the um, producing editor's eye I mean because when we all just watch these shows of any any show no matter what we're watching and we and we don't it, I mean I tell people to I have in the past we've mentioned on the podcast that watch some of these amazing nature documentaries 
watch it once just to enjoy what's been shown and, and let yourself become immersed in it. Mm -hmm. And then if, you, if you're into video and want to do more video in nature and wildlife, watch it a second time mm -hmm. for how they do it, how long the clips are, how frequently right. they change, what the compositions are like. Mm -hmm. and, and what you're pointing out is something new and that it's okay to be imperfect mm -hmm. if it's if it's delivering the content and the shake is okay or yeah so uh, that's that's great and coming from you that 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 means a lot so that's cool to hear that yeah and then there's you I mean you have to be aware of what the the mood is that you're creating or i've um right my um videos from i would say even say six months ago had much shorter clips because I was trying to deliver as much interesting comment and or uh, content and as much change of scenery as possible within a video, and then um, just listening to my audience and, and hearing them like just saying I'm watching this because I had a stressful week and I want to just de-stress. I want to just zone out. I want them to be longer, and I and I want to see all those little things that you're doing for longer instead of the the like I was down to like three to five seconds would be a long clip. I'd have to change camera angles. Even if I was still working on the same thing, I'd still change camera angles. And, and now um, people are feeling more relaxed because the pace of my clip changeovers or camera angles is, has relaxed a little bit. So I might have a 30 second clip now of me doing one thing from that same angle and people are enjoying that too. But it's not but it's a different audience maybe that's watching that on say a Friday night compared to who's watching it on a say Monday at noon when they're supposed to be working and they're taking 10 minutes or 20 minutes out of their day to, right. to, to see something quick and, they, and keep, keep them interested, keep them captivated. So different video styles depending on the mood that, you're, that I'm trying to create. Wow, I love that. You know, it's something, I think video clips historically were longer you know, lately it's, I mean, they're so fast, but I think, you know, popular shows want to make sure they hold people's attention, knowing that people's attention spans might be compromised due to their stressful life, due to all the stuff they watch, the, the smartphones. Or, you know, I know my attention span has, you know, been compromised a little bit over the past five years because of of these screens, uh, these touch screens and those, how quickly that gratifies um, the mind perhaps, you know, and so sit down and read a book is, is a practice to try and, and, and focus and, and maintain an attention span. So I wonder in these, you know, this, this trend over the past 10 years for shorter and shorter clips, it makes for a more adrenaline-driven mm -hmm attention-grabbing show but I think it would be refreshing if perhaps the audience transition transitioned back and I could see it myself I would enjoy it being less frenetic mm -hmm. and, and having some slower clips and, and feeling a better relaxed flow I think you know I haven't heard it put quite so well is what you're saying and I hope it goes back that way but I could see why there would be a significant portion of the audience especially for your self-reliant mm -hmm. wilderness lifestyle because it's like that I, I could see this 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 challenge for you because the modern success 
formula of short clips, like super short clips. But, you know, the longer ones really do flow better with what life is like in the forest mm -hmm. in the wilderness. Well, part of that, too, is what happens in an actual day. So I've got, and, and I have felt that pressure to produce more captivating content and keep it keep it moving fast. Um, just some some reason today, I was as I was working outside. I I, I was running out of water. I was preparing a dinner, which I put on around noon. Slow roasted lamb shank in the uh, earthen oven, which takes time. I had to start the fire in the oven, get it up to temperature, and then uh, get some water and wash the vegetables and all that. Well, we even though it's been cool and we've had some rain. Um, not getting enough rain at one time to fill up my water buckets that I collect water from the roof on. And I'm looking at this, uh, my water resource dwindling and then, you know, do I go to the lake and bring buckets back or whatever? I thought, you know, I've, I'm, I'm remiss in not showing what people want to see and that's everything. So when you walked up, I was actually doing my laundry in a bucket, a couple of buckets. Nice. Maple syrup buckets, right? Of all things, sure. But they're full of water. I've got one with soap and one without soap. I wash one, and rinse it off in the other, and hang it on the line. Well, those things are what happen in an act, in a real day. So, by not showing that, there's this big gap that people are wondering what happens in that gap. <clears throat> Here, I'm thinking, I need to just build something really quick and make a 30 minute video out of it. Maybe some, well, not maybe. I get comments all the time. Show me four hours of your day just doing all of those things that you take for granted. Wow. Hours. wow. Well, and I see why, because when I sit down, when I have the time to finally sit down and try to watch something, I, uh, you know, I've seen the, the memes where there's a couple of skeletons sitting there in front of Netflix trying to, with the remote, trying to find something worthwhile watching. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And if I could get onto one thing and just watch that thing for till I fall asleep or till I'm de-stressed, then I would do that. Yeah, you know, it hasn't been recently because we, we don't have television <laughs> where we are, but, you know, I have the internet and watch stuff that way. But I, I did, you know, historically back in the day, lose a number of hours to flipping through endless channels trying to find something of interest, and that's, that can be a waste of time. So, yeah, your show, it's a de-stressor for people, and, you know, there's so many people who don't have the privilege of being in a... Mm -hmm in a pristine wilderness setting like this and it's so all those things help them relax mm -hmm. i really liked how on our first podcast with you you know you mentioned that so many people around the world are moved by any wild life experience big or small that even even a red squirrel Mm -hmm. Which some things we take for granted because they just—I mean—they're entertaining in the right light, in the right time, mm -hmm. running tree to tree, but you know, collecting all their their cash for the winter, pine nuts and stuff. But you know, the fact that your audience was enthralled with, with that, mm -hmm. can be that subtle and, and and but that fits the mood, right? The relaxation part. I mean, I, I know you have thrilling stuff, and and trust me, you know, this stuff that's going to happen in Alaska, there'll be some. <laughs> There'll be some elements of that, but I, I really do celebrate the subtleties, and and that's what a lot of time in as a wildlife photographer or in nature brings is those experiences that don't have to be grand that still mean something. 
also integrating it into your everyday life. So that's you just, you, when you're talking about the squirrels there, I was picturing the, the midden, which you know, to see these massive mounds of of uh, discarded pine cones and and uh, that's a there's a complete story there that we don't even tell and if you were to watch that on say planet earth or um, you know one of the epic um, uh, nature programs it might not be that interest might not be that in and interesting enough for them to show that but if it's something that's happening right here around me, around the cabin, mm -hmm. and it's actually integrated into my daily life and a video of all of the things that happen in a day at the cabin, right. suddenly it's, it completes that story again. It's sure. It's now put that into context where maybe if that was a, just a squirrel program, many people are going to actually want to watch that thing, you know? Right. So that's ha true. Having all of the, the having nature, um, um, be part of the life and, and the content is created not just specifically about that nature subject but about how does that interact how does that fit into my life and and you as a wildlife photographer there's not just that static image out in that wilderness you got to that wilderness somehow you did where is that place and how does that relate to your everyday life there's all those right. things i think that I, I find very interesting I'm hoping that's what our show can deliver mm -hmm. as we develop the YouTube is, you know, the still image is a highlight point of that, but mm -hmm. there's so much more to that story mm -hmm. from the preparation to get there, the effort, um, but then just the, the majesty of being there, the, the landscape, the experience that we could describe much better in video format for people in, in so yeah, I'm looking forward to that developing more, and it, it weaves into a story. And I, maybe I mean that's the red squirrel is is one of your, I mean a lot, I think a lot, maybe not all, but a, a significant portion of your audience would view it as one of your wildlife neighbors. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, that that lives lives here with you. Yeah, you know, has just watched everything develop here with all your hard work and <laughs> yeah, yeah, and Kelly's playmates, right. <laughs> right, playmates taunter from the treetops, scowl and <laughs> chatter, and but yeah, there's a lot of elements to that mm -hmm. personality. Well, this has been great. I just yeah. hit my microphone; that'll be a little blip in the. But um, no, I've, I, this is. Thanks for taking the time to talk, and I am looking forward to our many days of adventure in Alaska and the stories that we'll get to weave and download to our audiences and, and share from that adventure. And for those that are able to go to places like that, we hope it'll inspire them. And for those that are unable, we hope that you'll enjoy hearing about it. And uh, purely for that reason, to take you there uh, from your armchair, or from wherever you are, so that you can, you can share in some of the wonders uh, of this wild planet that we can bring to you. Mm -hmm. And find your the inspiration to find your own little place that maybe is not Alaska, maybe not brown bears, but maybe it's a red squirrel in the local park. Oh, exactly. There's a lot of wonder everywhere. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there, I've, I don't want to jump off into my subjects to bring it to a close here, but yeah, I have friends that live in downtown Toronto and he's an avid birder, so is she. And um, they had a migration of, I forget what the songbirds were, but a flock of about a hundred in their tiny backyard this spring mm -hmm. and went through and it was just a moment and they had two little boys and everybody got to observe it and witness it and apparently he just put grass seed down. <laughs> <laughs>
So they help relieve the, the soil of some of the grass seed, I think, as they were heading north. But you never know when, you, when there's something worth pausing and, and enjoying for that moment because mm -hmm. this world's full of it, full of wonders, nature, and, and wildness. Mm -hmm. So no matter what podcast platform you're listening to us on, please take the time to subscribe and follow and to hit those buttons and to give us a positive review, a five-star rating, or a thumbs up, as those help us to do what we love to do and to bring you this podcast on a regular basis. Thanks, Sean, for taking the time tonight. It's been a lot of fun to be at your amazing cabin here in the wilderness today. And you can find more of our work, of course, on Instagram, on Facebook, on our YouTube channel, Wild and Exposed Podcast, and on our website, at wildandexposed.com. You can find all of our previous podcasts there as well. Missy, thank you for doing your great work, your hard work, talented work in producing these podcasts for everybody's listening enjoyment. Until next time, you've been listening to Wild and Exposed Podcast. Thanks for tuning in.